all with a common bond. First, let's go back to November 20th, 1982. For the 85th time, Cal and Stanford are involved in a heated contest. After a wild game, Stanford, led by young John Elway, takes the lead with just four seconds left. The Stanford fans and band are already celebrating, and why shouldn't they? The game is over. One final play begins as Stanford kicks short to Cal. A mad scramble ensues. Laterals follow near tackles, then a blind over-the-shoulder lateral. A mad race to the end zone. Down goes the Stanford trombonist as the touchdown is scored. The unthinkable happens and Cal wins. As it turns out, it wasn't over. How about this one? Meet the Lilies, Russell and Terry. It's 2001. Their 10-year marriage has been a constant source of frustration. A vicious cycle of selfishness, fighting, and isolation has left them both exhausted, angry, and done. Never mind the vows. Never mind the two young boys. This one is beyond hope. This marriage is over. Following their divorce, Russell becomes a follower of Christ, and Terry begins to notice the transformation taking place in Russell. Hardened hearts soften. The relationship begins to heal. Forgiveness is sought and granted. In 2007, they remarry. The one that became two is now one again. Then there's Raylene Kuferschmidt. It's January 2008. Ray suffers a cerebral hemorrhage. Declaring her brain dead, the doctors remove her breathing tubes. Knowing that it's over, the hospital releases Ray to her family so she can be taken home to die comfortably. Meanwhile, Ray's family plans her funeral. But someone forgot to tell Ray that it was over. At home, Ray suddenly wakes up. She's checked again by her doctors, who cannot believe that she's still alive, much less alert and healthy. Funeral plans have now turned into vacation plans for Ray and her family. Logically devoid of hope, legally divorced, literally dead, everyone thought it was over. It's not the first time. Flashback almost 2,000 years. A man claiming to be the long-anticipated Messiah is unfairly accused. Offered up to the lying crowds by a Roman official, the supposed savior is flogged, mocked, tortured, and beaten. He is nailed to a tree and crucified. He dies and is buried. Hopes that he is the Messiah fade away. It is finished. Friends scatter, disciples hide. Evil celebrates, and for three days, it is over. But on the third day, there's an empty grave. Evil has lost its victory. Death has lost its sting. Suddenly, miraculously, the only thing that is now over is hopelessness. Four stories, one message. It's not over, even when it's over. It's not over. In fact, last night, if you're watching your Texas Rangers, <laughs> you got Prince Fielder up, top of the ninth, two outs, two strikes, slumping Fielder. You're thinking, this thing's over. <laughs> he skies one, right? Out of the park. It's not over. <laughs> Odor comes up in the 11th, hits a home run, Texas wins. It's not over. Whether it's baseball, whether it's football, whether it's more obviously real life stuff like marriages, work, parenting, whatever it may be, physical, sickness, 
whatever situation seems like it's impossible, this thing's done, God wants us to hear this morning that it's not over, it's not finished. But let's be honest, we're tempted often to have this attitude of resigning to the fact that there's not a chance that this thing's going to change. Often we can have this fatalistic thinking, this pessimistic view, this negativity that can sometimes rule everything in life. But God wants it a different way. God doesn't want us to have fatalistic thoughts. God doesn't want us to lean toward the bent of pessimism. Instead, he wants us to have this open-ended expectancy that he is going to come through, that he's going to act so that you and I would have hope. Hope. Sometimes we can bend toward fatalistic thoughts, these devastating feelings that things aren't going to change. In fact, they're just going to get worse. You see, the first century church, no doubt, was tempted to lean that way. I mean, think about it. All the power struggles, you got the Roman government against you, you got the Jewish religious leaders who you thought, hey, these are good guys, they're for us, but no way. Your life gets changed, these guys aren't for you, they're against you. You got priests who are hostile toward you, and then you got the normal stuff of poverty, money issues, you got the normal stuff of diseases and sickness, and there's every temptation to say, this thing's done. I've turned my life to, to God, but, but where is he? Because persecution is on the rise. There's this guy, Saul, ravaging the church. What is up? And you're thinking, man, we're done. It's probably even going to get worse. We resign to that fact sometimes, and it seems like, man, there's just no hope. But here's the great news, as you saw in the video. We don't have to have that attitude. Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He's not distant. In fact, he's near. He's not silent. He's speaking. He's not weak. He's strong. He's not uninterested. He's very interested. He's not lacking progress. He's moving. He is moving. And he is working. And he wants to work in my life. He wants to work in your life He wants to see what he started in his earthly ministry continue through your earthly ministry. He has not stopped. He is unstoppable. He's in the business of butting in, and you want him to butt in. He's in charge. He's got all authority, and he wants you, as a result, to be full of hope this morning. Because we have a God who is infinitely creative. We have a God who is infinitely resourceful. He is not boringly predictable. We think that way sometimes, but he is not. He is full of surprises, and he is ready to act. And so guess what? Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't think it's over, because guess what? Saul's life was changed. We've seen that. Dramatically changed. It's possible in the bottom of the ninth, at the top of the ninth, with two outs and two strikes for a slumping fielder to hit a home run. It is possible for a marriage that seems like it's done to not be done. It's possible to think this job that I have, why am I going to go back? This life that I'm living, what's its purpose? These kids that I'm parenting, nothing I say seems to land. (laughs) It seems like often we can have reasons to be fatalistic in our thinking. 
in the midst of struggles, reasons that we look even in our society, even this morning, waking up to the news of another shooting of 20 or more dead in Orlando, and we think, God, what in the world? We could still have hope. And so I want you to walk out of here today full of hope. You might be here today and say, why in the world am I here? And I think it's because God wants you to know it ain't over. It ain't over. And so I want to do three things today. I want you to see that Jesus is in the business of turning things around. That's what he came to do. He came to butt in and turn your life around. He came not only to do that, but he came to use people like you and I to be a part of turning other people's lives around. And then at the end of the day, thirdly, he wants us to have a different attitude than an Eeyore attitude to think, woe is me, woe is me. Things are just gonna get worse. No, he wants us to say, no, there are better days coming. The best is yet to come. And so let's think about that this morning in this text. Look at verse 32 through 34. Look at what happens here. This will get you jazzed because this is some exciting stuff. Listen to what happens. It says, now as Peter, or meanwhile, let's get caught up with Peter because where's Peter been? Luke doesn't want you to forget that the apostle Peter is still on the move for Jesus Christ. And so he says, now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Ananias, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, make your bed. That could mean pick up your bed mat. Could mean go make your table and eat. There's some different references to that. Whatever the case is, he is believing, Peter is, that Jesus Christ is going to heal this man. And immediately, he got up. Wow. That is unbelievable. Here is Peter. We get caught up with him. He's 25 miles northwest on the travel to Lydda. And here what we see is the gospel and the kingdom of God continues to be on the move in every nook and cranny from Jerusalem and beyond. And by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Peter is taken to this place, Lydda, and there he finds a man by the leading of the Holy Spirit, and by faith, he believes that Jesus Christ can heal this man, and Jesus gives him that faith. And he believes, and Jesus heals this man. And so this man, eight years without being able to walk, has his life turned around physically. And he stands up, and he walks again. And so what's the message? Jesus is doing something in the here and now. Because we live in the same age as Peter. We live in the same age of an eight-year man who is paralyzed, who gets up and walks. We live in that same age. Jesus is doing something in the here and now, here and, now and here's what it is. He is turning lives around. And you might be in here this morning, you might think physically, you might think health-wise, you, you might think whatever it may be, maybe spiritually, you're struggling with a sin or a habit, and you're like, man, I cannot break this. Well, here's what I want you to hear. Jesus can turn that around. He can turn it around. There, there might be some things in your life right now, they may not be horribly bad things, but they may not be the best things. They might not be good things for the kingdom, and you just feel like, man, I'm on auto um, uh, the cruise control and just kind of just in this rut. God has come to get you out of ruts. 
He wants to turn your life around. And we see that here. He turns his life of this eight-year paralyzed man around. And look what he does in verse 36 through 41. Let me introduce you to Tabitha. Look what happens here. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated in the Greek, Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness, charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time when she fell sick and she died. When they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose. He went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside Peter, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out, knelt down, prayed, turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand. He raised her up, called the saints and widows. He presented to them her alive. Amazing. Peter, three hours away from Joppa, a three-hour walk. And these friends of her send these two men. They show up. They're on the run to Lydda with an open-ended expectancy, with hope. Not just that a healing can occur because a healing is not needed. What's needed? Resurrection. And they're on the run, hoping. Three hours there, three hours back, bringing Peter back all the way, hoping for resurrection. What's amazing about this is when Tabitha dies. Look what happens in in verse 37, would you? It says, when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. You don't do that in the first century culture with a body. You don't leave a body to lay there overnight. That just doesn't happen. And so what happens here, as soon as she dies, can you imagine? I don't know who the first one spoke up, but can you imagine these disciples in Joppa? They're like, wait a second, wait a second. This doesn't have to end. This doesn't have to be over. I want to know who that guy is, right? Who is that guy? And then who are these two men? They're like, hey, you know what? You're right. We hear Peter's around. He's three hours away. Let's get to it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? What is that? That's not fatalism. That's hope. That's hope that, hey, listen, this thing's not over. Now, raising the dead was not a common feature of any ministry. Jesus raised three people. Peter was witnesses to all three, so no doubt when they hear Peter's near, they're thinking, man, this guy, it's been guys connected with some amazing miracles. Let's go tap into this dude. Let's tap into Jesus. And so what does Peter do? He comes with these guys. He relies on the power of Jesus Christ to bring Tabitha back to life, and by faith, he prays. He calls Tabitha to arise. So what does Jesus do here? In the most dramatic fashion experience, he brings Tabitha back to life. This is some kind of s- some swooning type deal, like many people will even say with Lazarus or Jairus. This isn't that, this isn't anything to where this person's just, oh, she's lying asleep or just for a little bit, she's kind of unconscious or anything like that. She's good as dead. She's dead. And God raises this woman to life. And so what's the point? What's the point? See, Tabitha 
has things turned around for in the here and now. And I want us to get that. We've seen that with the first guy. God wants to change our life in the here and now, but here's another point that we gotta get this morning is when it comes to our future because this healing right here is pointing beyond the here and now as well. It's giving you and I a taste of looking forward because reality is we're all going to die like Tabitha. And guess what? Tabitha is going to die and she's not gonna be raised up again after this. She will die. And so what's the point? God wants to turn around not only the here and now, but God wants to turn around your future. And what I mean by that is we look forward and, and one day our end will come. We don't know when, we don't know how, but one day when it does come, the question is, will death be turned around for our good with life eternal? What's your expectancy of the end? Are we looking at it with an open-handed expectancy full of hope that Jesus will raise up to us to new life, that we will be with him forever and that our destiny is new heavens and new earth? Is that what we're hopeful for? Or today, do we sit here, are we unsure what lies for us when that final breath comes? Are we unsure what happens for us then? Today, as you look at this, I want you to be sure because as God raises up this woman physically, he is going to raise up believers. And here's the deal. You and I, when we pass on as those who trust in Jesus Christ, when death comes, it's a speed bump in the road. And it is a great thing for the believer to pass from this earth because guess what? We get to see Jesus. We get to be with him. And we can be full of hope. We can be full of hope to know that nothing can separate us, nor anything in this life, nor death, because Jesus has turned even death around, because he has conquered sin, he has conquered death, our final enemy, and he has conquered the enemy himself. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, he asks the question, oh death, where is your sting? Where is it? It's been swallowed up in victory. Why? Look at that last part of the verse. It says, therefore, in verse 58, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable. Can you tell that? Yeah, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Why is our toil not in vain? Because guess what? Jesus is turning things around. That's why. You and I can have hope. We can be immovable, steadfast, hopeful. Because Why? He brings victory even over our greatest fear and greatest enemy, which is death. He is victorious over that, and we see that here even in this healing. And so as a result of these healings and this resurrection, they have their lives turned around for, for good. But look what happens as well. Look at verse 35 in the text. It says this, And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord as well. You see, God is about turning lives around, not just physically, but spiritually. They turn their lives to the Lord. What does that mean? They repented. This is a 180-degree turn. They're, turning, uh, they're living a life toward um, other gods, another belief. Um, 
completely ignorance of God, that they don't seek to know God, but all of a sudden, because of this healing of this man, God breaks through in their hearts, and they respond to the Lord. They turn to him, and they begin to follow him. That's what's happening here. And then look also at verse 42. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And so God takes this resurrection of this sweet lady, And he uses it to break through the hard soil of hard hearts to say, listen, it wasn't over for Tabitha. Even though it was over, it wasn't over. And it doesn't have to be over for you. And these people turn and they believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you want today to have that kind of hope where you you can say, hey, anything can be turned around by the power of God. It begins with faith in Jesus Christ. So today, do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in Jesus to save you, to forgive you of your sins, to give you life eternal? Because that's where this kind of hope begins. And he wants to begin today by turning your life around. And so let me plead with you, turn to the Lord. Believe in Christ. Believe in him. It was cool this week at VBS. There were a lot of cool things. Um, uh, it was fun, and it was, it was, we had a lot of good times. But one of the things I loved about the last night, I sat here with four fifth and, and sixth graders right here, four, four guys, four young men. And there was two things that stood out. And they were asking questions about Christ, what it meant to believe in Jesus, different questions about Christ, and, and I just love their, their questions, and, and uh, one of the kids asked me, he said, listen, he said, so, so this is the only way. This is it, right? And it's like, you're betcha. This is the only way. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You want life turning around effects. It only comes through believing in Jesus Christ. That, that's it. That's where salvation comes, and I love just a simple question. So this is it. He just wanted to firm up. This is it. There's no other way. That's it. That's it. And I love this other kid right here. I, I love what he said. He loved this. And I, I got to go tell this dad if I see him today. I think, I don't know if I saw him yet. But he said this. He said, he asked this question. So, um, so this is what real men do. Real men believe in Jesus. And I said, that's exactly right. Real men believe in Jesus. They love Jesus. And he looked at me with all sincerity and genuineness in his heart. And he goes, you know what? Like my daddy. I thought, yes, Lord. Loved it. Because real men believe that there is a God who is turning lives around. And real men believe in that God. They believe in that God. So men, I pray today that, that you are men who are leading in that kind of attitude in your home that, hey, you know what? There is hope. There is hope. God can turn things around. God can turn things around. Don't be passive, but lead in that. So Jesus is turning things around. He's doing it now. He's going to do it in the future. Believe him. You can take it to the bank. Second thing I want you to see in this text is how he uses us. He uses others to turn the lives of others around. That's what he wants to do. 
He just doesn't turn our life around and say, all right, here you go. Just, just live how you want to. Now, no, he turns our lives around so that we can be a part of impacting the lives of others. And look at how he does that here. Look at Peter real specifically. Verse 34 and 40, he says this. Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, make your bed. Immediately he got up. And then look at verse 40. It says here, um, Peter sent them all out. He knelt down. He prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. God wants to use us just like he does with Peter as his agents in turning lives around. But how does he do it here? He does it by this. He does it by people who are walking by the Spirit, who are led by the Spirit of God. Because think about Peter. He is led to Lydda. He's led there. He's led to this man, Ananias. He's aware. He's, he's observant. Then being there, he was found by these two men. He then goes to Joppa where Tabitha was. And so what do we see here? We see Peter was in the full stream of his useful, usefulness. He's available. He's open. He's attentive to the things of the kingdom and to the working of God and then in the moment, what do we see? He believes. He believes in the power of Jesus to heal. Jesus gifted him with the faith to believe that he could, uh, Jesus himself, had the power to raise up Tabitha and to heal this paralyzed man. And how do we see that expressed? In his prayer. It says simply here, he prayed. And what is prayer? Prayer is the expression of a believer's life that God is going to turn things around. Prayer is the expression of faith. And so pray. Whatever is concerning you, whatever is tempting you to be fatalistic, to be without hope, to be pessimistic, to be ne negative about whatever it is in your life, believe that God can change it. Because that's what Peter did. He believed. Bring it before the Lord and pray. Look at Tabitha. Now in Joppa, verse 36, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is also called Dorcas. Interesting, her name, both in Aramaic and Greek here, uh, means gazelle. Gazelle, right? So VM, anytime I see your sister, I'm gonna start calling her gazelle, all right? Just, just maybe send word to her, let her know that. <laughs> she already know that? Do you know? Uh, yeah. I should let you know we were going to talk like this. All right, there we go. Okay, so we see Tabitha, and what, what do we see about her? She's this woman that was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And then look at verse uh, 39. Look what it says here. It says, so Peter arose, went with them. When he arrived, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows, check this out, stood beside him weeping, showing all the tunics and garments that Dark, uh, Dorcas used to make while she was with them. We saw it uh, a few weeks ago, or last week with Barnabas, uh, encouraging, God using this gift of encouragement in the life of Saul and the disciples there. Um, and then we, we've seen it in the life of Saul, God using him to be this great communicator and this, this teacher. We've seen it with Philip being used to be this evangelist to share the gospel. And here we see it with Tabitha. She abounded with kindness, with helping the poor. Uh, she had this servant's heart to where to the widows and those impoverished, she would sew and, and make clothes for them. 
And so what do we see? God uses her and her gifts to minister and impact others, to help turn the lives of others around. What happens usually at a viewing or a funeral? People usually come up and and they'll share stories, often testimonies about how someone has impacted their life. And here we see that with Tabitha. Simply making clothes, doing what she knew to do, and she gave. She helped her community. Why? All to turn lives around because guess what? Her impact then and then the power of God raising her up, what's the end result? Verse 42, people believed. So even in death, and yes, in her raising, God uses that to impact the lives of those in her community. Wow. And then look at this. It's kind of hidden here, but I want you to look at verse 38 and 39 because I love this. It's the no-name people. And I think this is where God works most amazingly. It's in the no-name people. Because look what happens here in verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose, went with the two men. Stop there. Wow. No-namers. These disciples. Again, I want to know, who's the first guy that came up with the idea? Wait a second. She's not going in the grave. (laughs) Wait a second. We're not doing any traditional preparing of the body. No. Resurrection. We're believing. Wow. I want to know that guy. These guys commissioned two guys. I want to know these two guys. Full of caring hearts. They go three hours away. I bet they were on the move. I don't know how, whether it was horse, whether by foot carriage, whatever the case was, they are moving. They bring Peter back without any delay and they get back and God turns the life and the situation of Tabitha around. Can you imagine being a part of that? That's what God wants to do with you and I. It may be with just a simple word of hope in a situation that seems dire, but your word in the moment changes everything. That's what these disciples did. It could be someone just willing to run an errand that might seem like it's out of the way to someone else, but not to these two. They're like, no, full of hope, we're going. We're getting this dude, and we're bringing him back, and we're believing. See, God uses everyone in the body in different ways. He wants hearts, as he says in Philippians 2.4, that don't merely look out for their own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And as believers, we all have a part to play. One body full of different members, all different giftings. It may be encouragement, Romans 12 tells us. It may be service. It may be the gift of mercy. It may be the gift of prophecy, of sharing truth. It may be teaching. It may be this past week and simply doing jump rope with kids at VBS. It may be simply um, bending down and doing crafts with a kid at a week of VBS and giving up your time three hours a night. But whatever it is, God wants to take willing hearts and he's gifted them. He's gifted you. If you're in here today and you're a believer, he has given you gifts. He wants you to put them to work. And that's what we see with these disciples. That's what we see with these two men. And God takes 
these willing hearts, and he turns the life of Tabitha around. And so today, real simply, as we close, what kind of attitudes God want us to have? I think it's found in verse 31, to be honest with you. It was an attitude that the whole church seemed to have, according to Luke. It wasn't a fatalistic attitude. Remember, they had every reason to be fatalistic. It was funny, in our, our 9 a.m. session in here, what I love about um, what we get to do here at the Ridge on, on Sunday mornings is I love this time, but I also love 9 a.m. because I get to spend it with uh, our leaders who, who teach our children, and, and we go through the sermon just like this, and, and we were just, it, it's also a good time to discuss. And one of the things that somebody brought up, one of the reasons we can have fatalistic attitudes today is because of some of the political uh, things going on in our, in our country. And, and I imagine as we get closer to November, um, some of us could lean toward that. And I love what one guy said. He said, listen, every time I hear something on the news or something like that, it seems like, like three or four times a week, I'm going to Romans 13 just to be reminded I don't have to be fatalistic in my thinking. I thought, yes, yes, that's what the word of God does. The word of God infuses hope in us. It encourages us, right? And that's where the first century church was. They had this attitude. And what kind of attitude was it? Look at verse 31. And then we'll be done. Look what he says. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, they enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. You see how this verse, right? This explains Peter. This explains the disciples in Joppa. This explains these two men running to Lydda to get Peter. You with me? This explains their actions because this is their attitude. So instead of having this fatalistic, pessimistic view, what kind of attitude should we have? Two things real quick that you can go home with and chew on. First thing, fear God. Fear God. Don't make light of him and what he can do. Don't sell him short. Don't treat Jesus as marginal or non-active, because he's living, he's unstoppable, and so we should humble ourselves under his mighty hand and believe he can do the impossible, that he can turn things around. So fear him. Stand in awe of a God who says, it's not over. It's not over. It's not over now. It's not over when death comes. Fear me. Trust me. Secondly and lastly, walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The key is walk. You gotta walk. He doesn't say sit. <laughs> doesn't say sit. He says walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? As you're going through life, rest in his love. Rest in in his care, tremble at his power, be on the alert in your life, having this open-handed expectancy that he is going to act. He's going to act, just like we've seen today, and he desires to turn things around for good. That's what Peter did. 
That's what these disciples in Joppa did. That's what these two men did. They walked resting in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That was the church then. God wants it to be the church now. So let's believe. Let's have an attitude like the first century church. Whatever seems to be against us, whatever seems to be like we're losing in, trust that God can come in and turn things around. Because he is a God who's victorious. He's a God who's active and wants to work on your behalf. Let's pray.